When Strong Women Talk is a Why Empower podcast produced by Our Block Studios. WSWT is a container for self-healing, connection, and meaningful discussions. We're speaking our truths with each other and sharing them with you at home. My name's Ness, and I'm the founder of Why Empower Australia, a youth mentoring advocacy service geared towards helping young people aged 17 to 27 create paths for themselves that are fulfilling, passion-driven, and full of empathy and love. I am Tallulah. I am a co-founder and mentee of Why Empower Australia. I pride myself in being a champion of others and an activist for a better future. I love cake, astrology, and the colour yellow. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, we are joined by Maria Calibro-Sales. She is the CEO and founder of Calmar Corps. Their mission is to redefine the way the world works, and she encourages everyone to be a courageous champion. She is also Ness's mentor. We would also like to note a trigger and content warning for intimate family violence, miscarriage, and complex trauma. Um, welcome back, everyone, to episode seven of When Strong Women Talk. Um, we are joined today with a special guest, um, Maria Calibo Salas. Sales. Sales. Um, and we want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very mm-hmm. honoured. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, before we begin, we do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we're recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, future, and emerging. Uh, and anyone listening to our podcast today, thank you for joining us. Um, so, Maria, thank yes. you for coming, for making the trip down to little old Leichhardt on top of a sushi shop. <laughs> I understand that you used to live here. Yes, in Elswick Street. So oh, wait, wow. 20 years ago when I went to uni, awesome. so you know, as, as uni students do, they share house. Yeah. So I shared house in, um, in Elswick Street. That's so awesome. when you said Norton Street, I'm like, oh, that's my old neighborhood. Yeah, it's around the block. That's yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it. And how was that for you? Like, I mean, how different is Norton Street today compared Very to... Very different. Yeah. Um, at, at the time, it was just transitioning. There was a bit of a gentrification process with mm. Norton Street when I, when I lived here. Um, but the funny thing is, um, Calibo must be an Italian name mm-hmm. because I had uh, an account at the um, Leichhardt Library and, and whenever I'd get things on hold, I'd turn up and they're like, oh, you're not who we expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Maria Calibo obviously was like they were expecting an Italian woman. And Absolutely. In drops this, you know, little Asian girl yeah. going, hi, I'm here for I'm my here books. I'm here for my books, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually just recently rediscovered the Leichhardt Library. Like uh, when we first moved here, we were all about it, but then... I had a few overdue books and I was like, I can't show my face there ever again. <laughs> but we're back now. And they told us the other day that you can like borrow out 40 items from yeah. the library, which is incredible. Um, so we, we got like 12 books between us. It was great. It was great. It was great for poor students. Yeah. Because you know, you could ha- you'd have the um, VCRs at the time and yeah. then the DVDs was like, oh, this is, this is a technological, you know, leap mm. going from VCRs. Yeah. So it's just, it's good things because I'm, I'm a reader. I've always been a reader. So... Um, and movie watcher or movie buff. So it's it's good to have that turnover without having to purchase it yourself. So yeah. the local libraries, yeah. I'm, I'm always a big fan. That's right, that's right. Yeah. I feel like a lot of it is, yeah, seeing that transition, 
would have been really cool. Very different. So uh-huh. had a lot of um, you know, Italian delis and Italian bread shops. Mm. Yeah. So it I'm makes, not sure what it's like now. Yeah, it makes yeah. me a bit sad to like walk down Norton Street and see like a lot of the the shop fronts are actually empty. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was very vibrant. You know, gelato. Oh my god, the gelato shops amazing. Your little cafes. Norton. Uh, not the forum wasn't even built. So imagine true, that. Like true. way back then, yeah. wasn't even hadn't even been built. I think that's probably one of the things we enjoy most, I think, about living in this particular spot because when the sun sets, it, like, shines yeah. onto the building oh, and it gives us this beautiful. glow in this imagine. place and it's phenomenal. Beautiful. And But really all of the Italian places have just moved to the Forum now. Like, um, the far end of Norton Street yes. just completely bare. Like, yeah. even, like, any shop is pretty much closing down now. There's a shisha lounge there now. Yeah. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Yeah. That's where we're going after this. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that's the thing with places, isn't it? It it always changes, mm. and I love going back to places like Cabramatta. I mean, you know, when we first arrived in Australia mm. thirty four years ago, um, you know, like good old Filipino migrants, we ended up in Penrith. Mm. So I mm. went to Penrith High, and I, you know, finished high school in Penrith High, and I was actually the first cohort the whole entire. Um, period where we were a selective school but before that it wasn't a selective school mm-hmm. so um, it's it's one of those conversations that even now I, I think back to oh my goodness like I never expected myself to be where I am mm. coming from where I was yeah um, you know in Penrith and you know I guess Western Sydney in the 80s and 90s was very different yeah Absolutely. and I'm so glad it's changed yeah. for the better yeah and I think what happens is that you know, as more people intermingle and they work together, they go to school together, they're friends together, it opens up people's, you know, outlook. And perspective. Yeah. And, you know, it was, there wasn't a day probably in the 80s and 90s where somebody didn't scream something out at you that was derogatory or mm. go back to mm. your country or, you know, do some pigeon, you know, yeah. babble at you while you were crossing the street. You're just minding your own business. Um and that really made an impact on me, I think, um, growing yeah. up and certainly going into <clears throat> into Australia and Western Sydney in particular, where I had a mother who was, you know, who was summa cum laude of her you know, university, top of her class, mm. coming in here after teaching for 16 years, highly respected. And the only job she could get was wiping people's bums or yeah. cleaning people's houses. And That's right. as a child watching that, you know, there's some, something happens inside you, something unfurls and breaks inside you and you see a parent who you love and you respect lose their dignity. Mm. Mm. That, that really impacted me mm. very, very deeply. Um, I was always one of those kids as well where, uh, because I grew up with my grandparents, so I didn't actually live with my mum until I came to Australia. So I was 10 by the time I got to live with my mum. Mm. It's not an unusual story for many for migrant migrants. children, yeah. especially for Filipinos because, you know, about 40%... Um, of all adults go overseas to actually find work. So mm. most of their kids grow up with extended family. So I grew up with my grandparents and my granddad was one of those people who was like a ex-prisoner of war in World War II, escaped an actual Japanese prison camp with, you know, a handful of Americans. So a Philip, a Philippines was like a, a colony. It was 400 years the Spanish were there, mm. another 100 or so the Americans were there. So you always had that sense that, you were, you know, not quite as good as the people with, you know, lighter skin. That's right. And yet something turned when 
you know, the Americans wouldn't have survived if my granddad didn't know which herbs to use to, you know, mm. to cauterize like wounds and heal them. And because he knew the terrain and he could speak multiple local languages, he was then leading these Americans. Um, and he used to say to me, you know, women are the most formidable, you know, um, guerrilla fighters I've ever met. Mm. They have a, you know, they have this, this strength in them, like, because to him, like he never talked about it, but you can just imagine now as an adult, what that would have been like because you know rape was very much a, a feature mm. of you know any kind of war conflict yeah. conflict so he used to say and he, it was funny because i didn't actually realize i was even a girl until i came to australia because he never referred to me as a girl he always and he was a scout master so he was a jamboree scout master and whenever we used to do scout scouting events for boys and girls he would call it youth um, camps or kids camps he would always refer to me as a kid or a youth mm. I was never a girl so and then he would do things like competitions um, and so he was he was actually the 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 true epitome of courageous championship because mm. he's the way he thought and the way he ran the world you know as I knew it was very different to the society that I was living in so it was constantly my grandparents in particular were constantly sticking their neck out mm. to do something different um, and that 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 kind of became my normal to do something different to kind mm. of sta stand out, but also knowing that you'll get criticism for the things that you want to do that's not the norm. Absolutely. So I didn't feel lonely in that pursuit. I knew so long as my people. I was aligned to my mission that I, I you know I was driven by doing the good stuff that it would all work out in the end. It's mm. it's a weird sense of you know um, what do you call it? So words weird sense of centering that mm. it didn't matter when I had all those people you know when I came to Australia um, belittling me or you know calling out really derogatory names mm. I never let that affect me because I'm like that's not that's not my issue that's your issue yeah that's how you see the world and as a 10 year old really looking back now that was that was a, incredible an yeah. incredible worldview and that was because of my grandparents you know, I think really importantly because I also came from you know, background of domestic violence, if I hadn't had the championship of my grandparents, I think I would end up very differently. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I know that for a fact, I would yeah. have ended up very differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you no, know, coming to Australia, then my mum saying to me, oh, you can't be too loud, you can't be too forceful because you're a girl and all the rest of this. I had problems with my mum because <laughs> I'm like, how are you my granddad's daughter and yet your worldview is very different? So I really struggled with that coming yeah. into this space. So. Absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it really yeah. truly... Thank you for willing to listen. Yeah, That's really important. Of course, of course. Um, I think it really tr truly speaks to like the impact that advocating for other people can have on your ability to advocate for yourself. And there are so many points in your story that I, I just I resonated so much with, um, particularly like the struggle of migrant families when they come to this country. Like my grandparents came when 35 years ago and like on day three of getting here, they like started working and never stopped. Um, and to this day, still working, don't know if they're gonna be able to retire one day. And that's something that's truly scary to think about because off, more often than not, a lot of migrant families find that their grandparents are relying on them to succeed um, in order to be able to provide for them. Um, and I think that's a lot of pressure. And I think there's a huge disconnect um, with the education that migrants receive in other countries um, and that it's not recognized in this country because it's outrageous, to be honest. I think if we're supposed to be thinking more as a global community, um, why can't we recognize those educational qualifications in our country mm. just as we do in other countries? It just, it befuddles me. But there's so much about that, I think, that we can unpack 
um, through our questions about courageous championship, <laughs> which is why you're here today. And like, yeah, thank you for segueing us because that was yeah that really was good. good. <laughs> thank you, Miss Intelula. T. Yes. So, um, could you elaborate on what courageous championship is? And why is it important to champion those around us? Yes, yeah, so I, I guess I look at it from the way my life has unfolded. Hmm. Um, and sometimes courageous championship happens um, without planning. And I think for me, that's certainly been the case. So my granddad, for example, I told you that story about you know his background. So you'd think he was a softy, softy kind of person. He wasn't. Mm. Like he was a military man through and through, routine. Very. That man never t- could probably would explode it if it if it had to tell me he loved me. Mm. If it had to verbalize, you know mm. how much he loved me, he would explode. He would never say the words, but in actions, he was all about courageous. You know, championship. Mm. So, you know, my granddad was the son of the mayor, the wartime mayor in 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 my town, mm-hmm. which holds a lot of influence and power. And being the older son as well, he was expected to follow in his father's footsteps. But he he just never saw himself as that. He always saw himself as a teacher, you know, first and foremost, because he really understood how powerful that role was. Even though it wasn't well paid, didn't have the power or, or you know, the, the glamour mm. that a, you know, a town's mayor would have had. Um, because he, he just didn't, he just didn't, connect to the politics, the whole having to dim and diminish and dull yourself, especially your values and your mission, your purpose and you, and what you believe was good, you know, and good and right, just to follow like a, a party policy. Because yeah. to be a politician, you had to do a party yeah. policy. As a kid, you, you're, not, you're not at all involved with any of that. You just saw all these people that used to come and visit my grandparents and they would always convince my granddad to, you know, support them or, you know, run office and he would always say oh I'm just a teacher you know I'm just a teacher you know I I do my best work when I'm a teacher it's only now as an adult that I realized looking back at the things he did how you know how more influential and deeply you know powerful he actually was because you know in the Philippines there is a culture where you're normally around 10 or 12 you go up to the mountains especially if you're a family of good standing you go up to the mountains of the provinces and you hire housemates and house houseboys so domestic helpers mm. and they basically stay with your family and it's quite prestigious if you're a well-known family to be taken as a child and you work your whole entire life very you know feudal mm. um, and that that was your prestige to work for a family and be there for the rest of your life. Mm. Whereas he used to take me with him and because my grandparents, you, you know, they were adults. So I spoke like an adult, even as a child. And he, my grandparents didn't have like storybooks, not for children. So I, I don't even remember learning to read. I can't even remember that moment where I was learning to read. I just read. Mm. And my mum was saying, I think I started reading at about two. And I was reading books that had no pictures. I didn't even realize picture books existed until I came to Australia and you get the school books yeah. with the pictures. And I was like, oh, my God, this is blowing my mind. Colourful. <laughs> <laughs> Colourful. So I, he used to make me take this book. It was a black and red book and it was about the heroes of World War Two. And we'd go up to the mountains. And I would, you know, while he was talking to the adults, trying to source, you know, which families would like to give their, you know, kids to, to go into domestic service, he would make me go into a circle where I would read from this book. And the kids and the adults would be like, oh, my God, how do you know all this? I'm like, you just read. Don't you know how to read? (laughs) 
And so he said, what I need you to do is look for the kids that are hungry to to want to learn to read. And he used to say, then he, we would pick the kids that would go with us. And he would say, the one criteria is you have to go to school. So you work for us in exchange for going to school. Mm. If you don't want to go to school, we cannot take you with us. Because that is that is the important thing. And people would be sort of like, is he nuts? Yeah. Like, you know, why would he? Because, you know, in the Philippines, schooling is very expensive. Yeah. You know, so if you had money spare to send anyone to school, you'd send extended relatives, you spend, spend your family to school. You do not spend money on domestic helpers. Mm. Right? That That's just crazy. But also... By doing that, then you were setting an expectation, a precedent for all the other domestic helpers to maybe want to go to school and would create chaos in other, the neighbors' households because they'd hear about the crazy stuff you were doing. And, and so, you know, as a kid, I used to go to school and I'd, you know, I'd have kids bullying me and laughing at me and go, oh, your grandparents are crazy. <laughs> you know, as a kid, all you want to do is, you know, just... And so I'd like stomp off home to, you know, from school and I'd say, Granddad, like, Lolo, are you nuts? Like, people are saying you're nuts. <laughs> and then he would just laugh. He was like, you know, people, some people know one way to live and, you know, your grandma and I think there's another way to live. We're going to try it our way for a little while and if it doesn't work out, we'll just go back to the normal way. Mm. Right? So that's what he used to say. Mm. And he goes and don't let, you know, the teasing, you know, um, upset you. People just don't understand. I mean, they don't understand the first thing they do is they tease. But I hated it. I was like, oh, because I was getting picked on. Um, but it's now as an adult, I look back and I go, my God, how pioneering was that? Mm. You know, how amazing was that? But sometimes I get a bit of a guilt where I just didn't realize how amazing my grandparents were. Mm. And um, we went back in 2000 and, um, 2007, actually, my, my grandma um, was getting on and she was getting dementia. But then it was one of those cultures where everyone knew who you were so we'd go grocery shopping people go oh i heard your so-and-so's granddaughters you know my sister and I, they were like oh you know they gave us free scholarship you know they wouldn't let us pay they'd make us they'd make my farmer parents like you know um uh, fix the 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 thatch roofs or you know give them pigs or chickens for the school mm. but mm. they would never take money mm. But we never heard that from our grandparents. These are all new stories that were new to us. So I came back to Australia feeling really small, saying, like, look at this, look at this privilege we live in and, like, what have we actually achieved? Like, what impact have we actually done? And it just really sat badly with me and I knew I had to do something about Mm -hmm. it. And so it took a couple of years to to simmer and then that's why Kamako got started. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You are really good at segues because we were going to ask how you got to <laughs> to creating comedy. Storytelling. Yeah. So, <laughs> you are really great at storytelling. Uh, I mean, on that storytelling note, yeah. I guess, um, like, how how did you get so good at telling stories? And I, I think as much as it is a cultural thing, I think there's a part of it that's like, Someone actually asked me that. You know what? Because my grandma and my granddad were always about stories. So... I don't know whether people think this is weird, but it, it was normal to me. It's normal for many Filipinos. So because I was the youngest in the household, um, I used to sleep with my grandparents. I used to sleep between my grandparents. Mm. And because, you know, they were both quite um, routine, they would sleep in one position and they'd never move. So I had plenty <laughs> of room in between them. And I used to go to sleep with the two of them talking, like talking about really deep stuff. Mm. You know, they'd plan their day. They'd talk about family members. They'd talk... 
And so I would fall asleep to this cadence of their conversation. And it was always stories that they used to tell between the two of them and they'd laugh, they'd share it. And so for me, that was like my, that was my cocoon, that was my happy place. Mm. And so I think by osmosis, probably, I just learned that, you know, I can't look at a statistic without what's the story behind the statistic. Yeah, and it used to, you know, in my, in my early years, like in my 20s, you know, when I was middle management and coming up, you know, rapidly through the ranks, that used to drive the business crazy. I'm like, why do you need a story? I'm like, because the numbers not mean anything to me <laughs> unless there's a story behind it. What are yeah. we trying to achieve? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think, and also I think probably because, you know, coming to Australia, um, so English is my fourth language. So in the Philippines, there's 175 dialect groups. My so I speak, you know, one of the main ones mm. other than Tagalog and, Fili- and English, which is, you learn them in school. They're mm. the national languages. And so because I was always translating for people and people would look at me and go, I don't understand. It usually took a story to mm. explain to them how it worked. And especially because I got, I cottoned on pr- pretty early on and so did my family and my community that I had, I had this special talent of taking like, tax returns or you know immigration forms and filling them in really really quickly but filling them in really well that people got a really good outcome even as a 10 and 12 year old Mm. so I I got a reputation for if she helped you with your immigration forms or your tax returns it'll be it will be successful right but I would never do it I had a rule even as a child like I said I was a really pedantic kind of child even then I wouldn't do it for them unless they could also explain to me what was actually happening in the form, mm. right? Because I didn't want someone to just come to me, um, help me fill it up if what I was putting down wasn't the truth. Yeah. And I would push back a lot of people because I, I know they were lying, even if they said they weren't. And mum used to get really upset with me. Oh, no, but I told them you're going to help them. I'm like, no, I'm not helping them. Mm. It's still me that has to help them. Even if you promise them yeah. that I'm going to help them, I don't believe them. I don't think they're actually telling me the truth. Mm. And so that used to frustrate my mum as well because then she was losing face because she was promising people <laughs> I'd do stuff and I wouldn't do it for them yeah. once I actually met them. Mm. So even then I had that, I just had that backbone which was like, no, if it's not right, I'm not doing it. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine that kind of of like personality in a culture that was just, please just get along whatever the cost. It was very divisive and, you know, I, ha- I got a lot of criticism even within my family around the way I used to operate even as a child. Mm. So even within my family, I was always in a bubble of my own. I never felt like I quite fit in, right? And um, and I used to say that to my granddad because my granddad was like my best friend. And I used to say, I always feel alone. And he goes, no, you're not alone. You're just different. Mm. And, and and that makes all the difference. You're never alone. Um, and there's a saying in, in my Visayan language used to be like, anaksalikin kawayan. Which means someone that turns up in the family that's just so odd that it challenges the family. Like mm. they don't really quite fit in. So it's the kawaiian is like bamboo. It's it's the a literal translation is the child of the split bamboo. Like this child just came from the universe. They have no traits that's similar to anyone in the family. They're just odd. Yeah. And my granddad used to then say to me, like storytelling once again, he used to go. You know, every family has like a, a a line of light and a line of darkness. Every family has them. But every now and again, there'll be there'll be someone that comes in that's like the, the golden light. 
and it's that's required in a family because you know in asian cultures fam, the family unit is very very sacred there'll be a golden line that will come in that will shake up the family that will make them rethink and really reevaluate their values but also confirm their values mm-hmm. and i always used to think and he used to say that was my grandma right so he used to go yeah i agree grandma is the golden line she's just made differently everyone loves her and all the rest of this and she just has a way that just harmonizes everybody um and someone actually said it to me um two years ago when i came back to the philippines and i just burst into tears so like oh you're the golden line of the family <laughs> and because i never felt that i was because i always felt like i was separate mm. but then it just resonated so deeply in me i'm like i actually am but I have a hard time accepting that greatness because mm-hmm. that comes with a lot of responsibility. Mm. Um, you know, you have to carry that line and everything you do has to be completely aligned to that line, even when everyone else is against you. And That's it's right. a lonely space. That's right. Mm. You know, so... Somewhat being like the black sheep of the family as well. Yeah. yeah. And not so much the black sheep, just different. Yeah. So I think when I talk about courageous championship, like my granddad really took that mantle on board. Um, even to the point where he singled me out from the rest of the family and I got a lot of flack for it. So, you know, because in, in Asian culture, the closer you are to the grandparents or to the ancestral lines, the more favoured you are seen by the family. So whenever we would have family reunions, like, you know, the aunts, the cousins would pinch me, like, secretly. <laughs> so I remember one time we went to the beach and, you know, we went swimming and my granddad saw all these bruises on me and he's like, how did that happen? And I wouldn't tell him. Because I knew if I said the truth and, you know, Can't all these cousins, yeah. I was getting pinched, he would do something about it and it would create disharmony in the family. I didn't want to upset my grandma. So even then I knew that I was the, I don't know, like the gatekeeper of keeping the family peace. Mm. And to be honest, as a child, a that's, lot that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. But I found now really in talking to people and sharing stories is that children take on a lot of responsibility that they Mm. shouldn't when adults around them or the society around them lets them down Mm. and you know that that's not an indication of my upbringing or anything sometimes it's just the way the society is built yeah that that forces children to take responsibility for adult things that they shouldn't and so that's why a lot of my you know my passion and the work that i do now i don't have children of my own i've had nine miscarriages but still I feel lucky in the sense that I have a purpose. And for me, it's setting the ground rules for the next generation to ensure that what I had to carry as responsibilities generally doesn't happen to the future generations. They can just blossom and grow at their own pace without having to take on heavy burdens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it diminishes you sometimes too. It stops you from, from just blossoming. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it's really important that, you know, as adults, especially as guardians, aunties, whatever, where young people are looking up at us, we have to have courage ourselves. Mm. Mm. Because if we don't show that, then they'll think that stepping back and letting bad things happen is the norm. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah, and then it just, you can imagine the kind of ecosystem that then creates going forward. Absolutely. You know, the, the power of silence that allows bad things to happen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
which is so funny because I had a conversation recently with um, someone who's going to be a guest next week um, about the role of community in things like consent education specifically and like education around hard topics that are quite taboo um, in our society at the moment. Um, And we discussed about how the way that it currently operates in that it's often like governments or people that are above young people generally speaking down and being like, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. When in reality, it's much more effective to have communal leaders or people who are like aunties and uncles in the community who like sit young people down and say hey like this is the standard that we accept in our community and this is what we won't walk past Mm. Um, and I think that in and of itself is such an integral difference that we need to sort of see a bit of a shift happen in our society um, in order to be able to move forward to any good place I think because we're also just disconnected from each other. Um, I I agree but also there is a challenging component to that because as much say that our indigenous elders right our cultural elders they play a a large role especially in our formative years and they are who we look uh, looked up to and trust to guide us through life but then if the government the the official bodies don't show the respect you know to the community um elders or you know to to those organic leadership you know pods or you know um, leadership communities Mm. then it creates um a disconnect from us to the the greater leadership role because we look to our governments to lead us and if their behaviors the policies don't actually show courageous championship and courageous leadership in fact just authentic honest you know um leadership with integrity yeah um that creates a disconnect in us and this is why you know you have structures like corporations that you know pollute and get away with it Mm. or you know actually commit crimes against humanity and get away with it Mm. then as we grow up as we also you know we're formulating and also defining our, our our style of leadership um it it breeds distrust that's right. You know, that's, that's why right. there's such a massive disconnect and a massive distrust in institutions. Mm. And I think that's actually heartbreaking mm. because they're meant to be there to serve a purpose. That's right. But if if we don't agitate or we don't go into those institutions, like, for example, I do a lot of work in the, Uni- in the United Nations and I get a, a lot of flack for it. They're like, oh, United Nations are so, you know, this and that. Like, this yeah. and that. Yeah. But, I, you know, someone said to me at the um, Commission on the Status of Women, it was a 2 a.m., zoom meeting globally so i can't remember who actually said it but it just it was just an aha moment for me and the quote was you have to be at the table if you're given a seat at the table take it otherwise you end up on the menu Mm. Mm. right if you're not part of the decision making you're the one that becomes an optional that's right yeah you know or your agenda or what you what you're trying to what you're trying to advocate for becomes part you know it just gets consumed Mm it doesn't become you know an important pillar yeah. of what you're trying to achieve so it's hard work because a lot of it's voluntary yeah 100%. you know and you wear so many different hats <laughs> um and you do have to sacrifice and give up give up a lot in your own personal life to do courageous championship mm. you know like socializing i've had to cut that out yeah you know even even leisure time like for me reading for me is like my one of my pleasurable you know, activities, I've had to give that up mm. in exchange for reading policies and documents and all the rest of it. You know, that 
you do because yeah. you only have 24 hours in your day yeah, that's and right. you can't do everything mm. all you got to sleep yeah. at some point <laughs> yeah. yeah um Tallulah and I actually used to be involved in politics um yes. and yeah it's a it's a place that I spent quite a lot of time um trying to create change in I spent almost like five to six years of my life in that place and it really kind of just felt like banging my head against the wall because I was doing it within quite an you know a system that was just operating for the system's sake mm. um, and for the game. Mm. And I think it kind of got to the end of that point where I think I was just exhausted and the universe just kept like pushing me closer and closer towards the door. Um, and then I just came to realize that a lot of what politics is based on, what it should be based on more often than not, is that community aspect. So coming back to community is also like somewhat coming back to myself in that journey. Yeah. Um, and it's just almost been like a karmic full circle for me, to be honest, um, because it's just been an entire roller coaster to get to where I am today. But again, like you said, like I probably wouldn't change it because it's just I'm grateful for where I am. Yeah. Like in, There's always a lesson in everything. Yeah. Even when you can't find it, yeah. even when you, as hard as you look right in the moment, <laughs> be like, why? But in hindsight, it will. And in such unexpected ways, too. Um, and I think sometimes too, because people always say to me, you should, you know, you're, you're quite vocal, you have something to say. And I just, similar to my grandfather, politics has never been for me. I actually find that in my heart of hearts, that my impact really is outside of that space. Mm. But working with the people that are in it, that have the stamina and the grit yeah. to to thrive in those spaces. And I give them a lot of kudos for being yeah. able to, because... I know I couldn't. Yeah. I'm not built that way. I'm not built that way. Yeah. You know, the Hunger Games? I'm not built that way. Literally. Yeah, Yeah, the Hunger Games. So, and so those that do thrive that, you know, you feel have their right, their heart in the right places. So you support them, you know, giving them information, storytelling, um, agitating in gentle ways. Yeah. Um, you know, but also activating. So if you're going to agitate, you have to have some ideas about what the solutions are. That's right. Because otherwise you just become part of the problem. Yeah. Mm. You know, just and then you, you also become part of the noise. It's yeah. like, because it's overwhelming. Imagine a thousand people telling you that you're doing something bad or things need to change, but no one, not one single, you know, person out of a thousand giving you a solution. That's or right. at least a pathway, an alternative way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really important with Courageous Championship is that, if you're connecting together to make changes, have a really good idea about what, you know, have a vision of what that's going to look like. Mm. If you do succeed, you know, in changing and transforming ways, have an idea of how long it should take because then it, it also um, creates um, an expectation in your energy and also you realise, well, one person can't do this. Yeah. I need at least 10. <laughs> yeah. And you start to see who those 10 are going to be or, you know, open up space to allow those 10 to come in. That's right, yeah. Because if you don't have that plan in place um, and that discipline to think, you know, this is this is way beyond me, I'm just a vessel for this to happen. Mm. And it's not even going to be solved in my lifetime. So how do I succession plans for future generations get all what's here into practice? That's right, yeah. You know? <sighs> Mm-hmm. shake that out <laughs> shake that out <laughs> is it landing <laughs> it is it really is a lot of it is just like um you know when you hear something and you can like feel it deep in your bones in your soul and you're like yeah um like putting to words what a, i think a lot of us are feeling at the moment but not quite sure what words to use for it so i think mm. that in and of itself is like a very valuable role that you are playing um and i think that 
you should be very proud. The Sage Elder? Yeah, or the guide. We're actually about to release our micro decisions workshop where um, we talk about the role from like the victim to the hero to the guide, the victim to the villain to the hero to the guide, and that journey that you can take as like an individual person from that first starting point to like, you know, the place where you want to pass on that knowledge and share that resource. And I think the important thing in the conversation is that when you said, you know, the victim, the villain, the hero and the guide, I think people need to understand that that's them. Mm. All four of those, you know, pillars are actually in them. Simultaneously. Simultaneously, yeah, yeah, because (laughs) anyone that's actually made a difference would have been a villain in some Mm. areas, right? And and so the, the one thing that my granddad used to say to me, he's like, if you're upsetting people, understand why you're upsetting them. Um, keep talking because you know when people are really negative at you or there's anger because you're you're shaking up their world but not in a good way because you're making them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. you're making them think around oh my values aren't actually that great what I'm pursuing is making me look like the bad guy Mm -hmm. right sometimes you can make people feel like that so how do you get them back again so you can keep talking productively that's right Um, and so he used to say so if people are you know upset at something you've said ask why is my peace upsetting you Mm. what is it about it that's upsetting you but make sure you're at a place where you can say that calmly yeah and you don't have anger behind the words either because then that's just adding fuel to the fire and he used to say to me because i loved gandhi right i love his whole philosophy and he goes remember gandhi's a hero to many but to the British, he was an absolute villain. He was making them life very, really difficult and uncomfortable, mm. right? So whatever it is, even Mother Teresa, right, when she decided to break away from the religious order, she's seen as a saint now. But you know, to the, you know, to the um, institution, she was like, you can't, you know, give mm. away to all these poor and live with the poor and all the rest of that. If you're doing something really significant that's going to transform something for either good or better you're always going to be playing those roles. You're going to be the victim. No one understands me. The villain, I'm going to, you know, be the rebel. Yeah. Right? Then you're going to be the hero. Oh, it actually works and it's actually helping people. And then after that, because there's a lot of ego in that hero space. Yeah. You have to find a way where you make space for other people to take on the hero work. That's right. And you become the guide. And the guide normally means that no one's heard of you. No mm. one's, you know, no one sees your name. Mm. And that's actually okay because that's a natural order of things. That's yeah. how it's supposed to work. Yeah. It's like the seasonal thing, right? Mm. You know, so you go spring, summer, autumn and winter. Mm-hmm. Life evolves in that way. And so you as a person need to understand that by the time you get to your guide stage, you have to have worked through the other, you know, three pillars of your life. That's right, yeah. Because otherwise they keep, keep getting mixed, yeah. mixed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I think it's good to try and strive to make other people uncomfortable in the way because I mean it like change comes from outside of the comfort zone right and um it means that you've sort of yeah like you've disrupted their perspective and it's not necessarily bad it just means that that person is a bit they find that feeling strange they've never had their it's like a fish questioning water they've never done that before and so you coming along and being like but why (laughs) um they'll have to like change up some way to be able to be okay with it. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think, yes, it is in hindsight. It's yes. always in hindsight yes. because when you're in the moment, 
you know, when you're in your victim moment, when you're in the villain moment, when every, it feels like the whole world is against you, you don't have that. You don't have that gratitude, and you don't have that grace. Yeah, mm. it's just difficult. Yeah. But sit in that moment to go. This is difficult, but try to go. You know, as Michelle Obama would say, <laughs> think higher, yeah. elevate, and go. I'm in this moment. Why? Mm. What am I? You know, what am I standing up for that? Is making it really difficult for me and others around me to connect to me mm. and that's what or always to resonate it's always yeah. what you say through why empower is to find the why mm. in things like you you know the how and you know the what but like why are you doing that and why is that important to you i think yeah and i think a big part of that as well like in in what you were saying about challenging people like the place that you're coming from it as is very important as well because people can feel if you're coming from it from a place of anger or a place of ego and people can understand when it's not when it's empathy right um and i think there's very much in that as well there's i can't remember who said it exactly but um there's a saying that the person that has the higher vibration is responsible for the vibrations in the room um so Mm. like if you know (laughs) then you're not supposed to go and like antagonize someone who's just not in the vibrational space to be able to entertain that discussion um but in the in the same breath similarly when someone else jars you in that way um it's also important for us to inflect on that and ask the question why does that bother me so much absolutely Um, and what am i Mm. seeing in that person that is getting me so worked up yeah (laughs) is shaking you up yeah yeah um, and I guess too, it's it's one of those things where you know give yourself permission not to not to contribute. Um, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting better at it. So I, you know, I guess it's it's the migrant mentality where you can't miss out on anything because you don't know when the next opportunity is going to come yeah. come along. It's a really I you know I story tell and share you know experiences with lots of you know migrant, but also. Um, people who have had some scarcity in their life, especially from a young age, they have this driver underneath them that just fires them up to just take everything that they can mm-hmm. um, in case there's a drought that comes after, That's right. opportunity drought Say that comes after. Um, <laughs> and I think the last, I can, and I'm, once again, I'm saying this in hindsight, <laughs> what's actually happened last year is I'm normally zigzagging around the place staying centered and having to take care and becoming a full-time carer for an ailing parent mm. Mm. that's been a major Curve, shifting really. point yeah. because i i really rebelled against that you know and, and the fact that mom was with us and the lockdowns happened no one could actually visit her meant there was no choice mum was it you know mum's a dragon you know dragon mum She's not one of those gentle mums that go, oh, I'm very supportive. <laughs> Complete opposite. Like the classic tiger dragon mum, which is, you got 98%, what happened to the 2%, you know? And and I'm, I remember challenge, challenging her when I was six, and I'm actually going like, to laugh. Mum, do you love me? And she was just horrified. She was like, you're part of the family, aren't you? Of course you're loved. <laughs> because that's a very, yeah. for her, that was a very vulnerable, very uncomfortable space to be yeah. in. So long as you're part of the family, of course you belong. Mm. Like, what the hey are you asking? What a, what a stupid question. Yeah. That was basically her response. What a yeah. stupid question to ask whether yeah. you're loved. You're part of the family, aren't you? Yeah. But that can also hold a lot of stuff where, you know, 
we had a joke um, for International Women's Day where we go, Asians don't talk about um, domestic violence because, you know, it's the price you pay to stay in a family and that can have different connotations. Um, but also it holds a lot of forgiveness of... And oh, I hate to say it, but um, my mother, crazy, you know, demanding as she is, she also holds this deep forgiveness. And all that stuff that happened, the bad stuff really happened to her. And she's fa- found a, so- a, a pool of forgiveness. Mm. I still don't get it. I don't get it either. <laughs> I still don't get it, but, mm. but just given her peace of mind. Mm. Right to kind of go, I can move on from that, mm. even I, without the apology that you know that she's deserving. She's just like, I'm not going to get that apology, oh so I'm just going to move on. Yeah, I still, yeah, I'm still struggling with that. So mm. I'm very human in that sense. Mm. Completely fair though. Let's be real. I feel like okay. So first of all, I have a few things on this. <laughs> so first, I think it's very interesting coming into it from like a background of a migrant culture um coming to australia where you have that disconnect between what's happening in this country for the people that your peers with and that you go to school with and you see like the way that they live their life and the way that their parents treat them and then you go home and it's like a complete like you're like what is happening there's that confusion um on another level so for my culture my mum is chilean my dad is chinese so there's already like a huge cultural difference in there right because Asian culture is, yeah, that very much that expectation that you'll always belong because family is always the most important thing. But there's no actual real emotional, like, yeah. journeying to get yeah. to that point. Yeah, and no. you're just like, you're there. That's your lot. Um, and I think my father actually has similar ideals where he just kind of has accepted his lot. And he's like, this is where I am. I accept it. And I'm like, like, why? Like, can we talk about it? I think we need to talk about it. But I think that that's also a very Western ideal that I've adopted from living here is the idea that you just need to work through it and like talk about it. And like, they don't want to, they're like the wounds closed already. Like, why would I want to reopen it? Mm. And I think that's part of it. I mean, the hardest thing is like, I had to live through a, you know, family domestic um, violence incident last year. And the amount of shame that wrapped around that, because I advocate for that. You know, and, mm. and I've physically distanced myself from family in general. Like, I think the only family events that I attend now are like funerals. That's it. Mm. Even weddings, no one's allowed anymore because it just descends into chaos. Someone mm. always gets hurt or, you know, and then it triggers. Yeah. It has multiple triggers. But even when you think you're in a safe zone, all it takes is a hairpin, and that's what happened last year. <laughs> and I ended up spending months and months in complex, you know, um, trauma. And my mum, who has also been triggered, but will refuse to be to see a psychologist or anything like that. Mm. So my poor husband's got these two women screaming in their sleep, like at the top of their lungs, um, you know, for a number of nights a week. And and he's come from a background. He's a you know New Zealander, um, white New Zealander, with the most lovely family upbringing. So <laughs> I'm quite amazed at his capacity to ab- absorb trauma when he's never experienced it himself like the the, mm. the level of empathy so I sometimes look at him and i just go why are you here yeah. why are you putting up with this like craziness you know yeah. and yeah. he just smiles and he goes i'm here for you he goes i'm loving yeah. this is what this is what love does you just 
you don't walk away and he goes and and I said and he goes I feel bad because I feel like I'm not doing enough because I don't know how to ease your suffering but what I love about his approach is that he goes this is beyond my comprehension like when I sometimes like I will kick him and punch him in my sleep because I'm in trauma and he knows what it is he'll just turn around and give me a cuddle he won't try get me to explain these are the crazy stuff that happens in people's you can't if I the mum is saying you can't make this shit up (laughs) this is what happens in real life and you know and he's really supportive like you know but my mum like the hardest thing I had to say to my mum I only said it to her at the beginning of this year was I'm seeing a psychologist like a serious psychologist complex trauma psychologist and her silence was actually the fact that she didn't even make a comment that was actually the kindest thing she could have done for me Mm. because normally what would have happened is she would have gone, oh, why are you doing that for? You know, that's stupid. And, and I don't like you airing up, you know, our dirty our family dirty laundry, laundry. Yeah. you know, with strangers that I don't agree with that. It's, you know, disrespectful, all the rest of that. But I think my husband actually said to me, I think she's heard you screaming in your sleep. And I think she's heard us talking and me trying to calm you down. And I think she's realised, oh, my goodness, my daughter is in her mid-40s and she's still traumatised from her childhood experiences. I need to just keep my opinion to myself mm. I need to shut up and let her deal with it mm. and I think I haven't lived with my mum since I was 18 really continuously and I left home for a really good reason and I think seeing me every day seeing the 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 collateral you know my face when I wake up when I haven't had a good night's sleep for the last couple of weeks and I've been suffering I think she's finally got it yeah got the message she's like you know this is this is it. This is the death she's gone to, mm. and then of course everything that's happened with COVID. Mm. There's there's been a switching a shift. on. Yeah. There's been a shift, and I think probably since I would say February this year, there's a softness and a kindness to my mother that I haven't seen in her seventy years, mm. and I think it's taken COVID to make that happen, and you know. I can say all I like about COVID and what it's done to me, but I think that's a significant breakthrough that I don't think we would have had Otherwise. without spending that enforced lockdown, having to look at each other every day and having to just grunt at each other every day and like, you're here, but I do not want to speak to you. Yeah. Like, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, I think once again, I say that in hindsight because I didn't have that gratitude or that grace last year. Mm. I was just a sl- slobbering mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's really hard to say that because you know people look up to you, mm. but you know I can say that now because this well, is a safe space to go. Yeah, yeah, last year was just. I have to say, like my respect for you has increased knowing that. Anyway, so like I, I truly think that sharing those ugly moments is just as important as sharing your wins. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, it's it's t- it's a it's a different space when you look at yourself and you go I do not like myself today I haven't liked my I haven't liked myself for a very long time because you know I have been tough on my mum you know even back as a teenager I was not supportive of her because I and I used to just say things like I'll never grow up to be like your mum like you know you have no backbone like I used to be really tough on my mum but she was also tough back on me Mm. so we just and I think I've just realized now in my in my you know in my wisdom of age, like, 
having two really strong personalities together. Butting heads all the time. Butting heads yeah. all the time. That was not a fun space for anybody. Yeah, yeah. But I think what we've realised, especially this series, you know, I say to my mum, no, I love you. And she actually says, I love you back. Mm. But then she'll walk away. <laughs> She's like, I'm uncomfortable now. All right, I love you too. And then just she'll just go to her room or, or go bake a cake. Like, you know, it's, it's still uncomfortable. Mm. Even for me, like, and now I can say it with humour now because I just now say it to her, like, I'll just go behind her when she's baking a cake and I'll just give her a cuddle from behind and just go, I love you. You know, this is really nice you're making. And then she'll stiffen up. Like, she always does. Oh, uncomfortable. And then she'll just, she, she'll either soften after she stiffens up or she'll just go oh i'm too busy baking a cake like you know get away from me but now i can say it with you know yeah. with humor like because yeah. i and now when i do it the more times i do it, it's like practice mm. it's like we haven't used that you know the love muscle between us like and really verbalizing really. it like physically hugging and cuddling mm. that's still very uncomfortable but now like i said you know i'm the one that's now leading that that charge and mm. so she just has to accept when i cuddle her and yeah. tell her i love her and now every now and again you'll see a smile when she walks away so yeah because <laughs> it's something i know she doesn't receive from anyone else yeah, yeah. because it's not a cultural thing it's not yeah 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 it very much is like relearning and like almost just like becoming the parent yourself in that situation i suppose yeah. it yeah. is and you know and looking at her you know her body's breaking down She's slowly losing, you know, her mental faculties. Um, it it does. It gives you a sense of, I'll get there one day, mm. you know. And, and mum really needs compassion now rather than getting tough on her. And I think my husband helps because he's a gentle soul, mm. complete opposite to me. <laughs> I'm very fiery. And he's the one sometimes when I just take mum for granted. Because, you know, kids do. Look, kids the world over, they take their parents for granted. We mm. just do. We just assume they're going to be there forever. forever. Yeah. Whereas, you know, my husband will say like, oh, oh, this, you know, good cooking, mum. I really enjoyed that noodle or whatever. And it just, she blossoms around that. And she knows how unusual it is for, you know, son-in-laws as well to, you know, pay their mother-in-laws um, a compliment. So she kind of basks in it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks, mum. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. sometimes it takes him to acknowledge that, you know, she's done a really great job for me to kind of go, yeah, put my okay, head up from the documents and go, oh, yeah, thanks, Mum, that was really young. <laughs> yeah. oh, children are so ungrateful. <laughs> they really are. Uh, incredible. So much of what you said resonated. We can talk more about it later because yeah. my mum listens to this podcast. Hi, Mum. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there, but I think we're not ready to have that discussion just yet. But she did drive me to therapy the other day which was a big step because i think a lot of migrants really struggle with the concept oh, of therapy yeah. in general they're like no i can fix it by myself and it's yeah. like yes but also sometimes it's yeah. nice to have someone to talk to yeah um and um yes yeah, so she, she i didn't tell her where we were going on the day we were just in the car and then like she pulled up at the therapist and she was like <laughs> what's this therapy? about <laughs> i was like see you see yeah. <laughs> let's do this some my mum did did say something i still don't know what i'm going to do with it yet when she because we're 30 years apart exactly on the same day mm. we have the same birthday so on her 70th That's birthday incredible. my 40th birthday she said you know what i'd like for you to record my story one day and because i because oh, wow. she's got great grandchildren now so she's like i'd like for them when i'm not around anymore for them to get to know me properly and she goes i think 
I think you're probably going to be the only one that will have the compassion to tell my story the way I want it told. I'm like, well, I'm not telling your story. I'm like, maybe we'll just have to do like a recording or a po- podcast where mm-hmm. I ask you questions and then you answer. And she's like, do I have to do it in English? I'm like, no, <laughs> we can translate it later. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because my, you know, my nephews, they, they don't really speak the local language, language anymore. Yeah. But I'm like, we can always That's translate incredible. it later. So you, you just use your own words, tell your own story your way. And I'll kind of prompt you because I also want to know, mm. you know, I mm. without the judgment of, you know, a teenage daughter at home, like having a mum that's so rigid. Mm. I think it she can be really tell her story. Yeah. A healing I, I still, yeah, I, I think, I think so too, but yeah. I still don't know where, where we're going to go with that yet. Yeah. So probably well, I'm going to start this year. You have sometime. a platform if you need one. <laughs> Let us know. Here. <laughs> oh, there'll be tears. I just know there's going to be lots of sniveling and yeah. Yeah, mm. slobbering around. I mean, in our first episode, we were like, this whole thing is just a container for healing. Yeah. yeah. Honest. Like, <laughs> our first episode we did in three parts. And um, we were talking about a lot of deep stuff at the time. And we really had to take breaks. So it is it is intense, but it's incredibly refreshing to be able to be like this, this, that, the other. And it's out in the open now. And you've heard me and everyone listening has heard me. Well, it's also yeah. just like the act of speaking to someone for longer than like 10 minutes, right? Yes. We don't yeah. do it very often in this day and age. And like even that's just it. sitting down around some nice food and just like having tea, like that's not something that we really do very often. So it can be a bit jarring when you first start. You're like, whoa. Agree. Yeah. I talk to someone for an hour. Without picking up the phone. Yeah. Because yeah. like, a lot of people are like on their phone. Like. Not fully present. Not fully yeah. present. And like. It is, like, a lot of people do have deep conversations with people that they love and people who who care about them, but it is that there's other distractions. You come in and out, people get up, people move, people that pick up their phone. It's different in that we've had to really get into the habit and train ourselves to be able to be like, no, we're going to sit down, we're going to look each other in the eyes, we're going to talk meaningfully and purposefully because there's people listening. And, yeah, it's just, it's really, like done wonders I think for the way I think as well yeah because I I think not that I was ever really a bad communicator but it's more that like I've sort of flexed that muscle a little bit more I've like practiced and um yeah and it's I would agree and we and we get opportunities to hear stories like yours thank you And and it's funny that when you're saying about you know people sometimes need movement or they if they're busy people they just need something while they're letting their emotions out, I, f- I found, um, especially in the last year, is that I'll, I don't mind regressing back to... So my mum and I, you know, I, I like my hair played with. So now I'll lie down and I'll lie on her lap or I'll actually join her in, in her bed, go into her room and actually join her in her bed and just sort of like, I'll just say, oh, mum, can, can you just like, I've got a headache because I get migraines quite a bit and she knows it. So I'm like, I'm getting a migraine. Can you just please, like, stroke my forehead? And she'll stroke. And then I'll start to ask a question. So, you know, I remember blah, blah, blah. And then I tend to find that sitting face-to-face like this, it's too confronting for both of us. Mm, mm. It's too much intimate contact of, like, looking each other in the eyes. But if we're not looking at each other, we're just – but we're still touching and doing a a minute type thing, then the stories come out and the – the, the honesty comes out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's a gentle conversation. Yeah. Because there's a purpose. I'm here to. And I, I tend to find that if I ask for mum to help me, she's more receptive. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, 
because I've just realized that I don't like people helping me. I don't like mm. asking for help. It's, it's an my ask muscle is really really weak. Mm. It's a it's, it's not something I've exercised much. Um, so, even as a child, she used to say, "Can I tie your shoelace for you?" No, ma, I can do it myself. <laughs> Whereas my other siblings, they were very dependent on mum. Like they'd buy a toaster and it would take a whole week of conversations to buy a toaster. <laughs> Whereas she'd turn up at my place and I we decorated and modeled the kitchen. She's like. You didn't even call me about that. I'm like, it's my kitchen. Why would I call you about it? <laughs> so she saw that as a rejection. Like yeah. I didn't need her even as a kid. Mm. Whereas in my mind, I saw how many people pulled on my mum and really added stress to her life. Would as a child, I was like, oh, I don't want to be that. Yeah. I want to be independent so mum can rest. Mm. Mm. So we were coming at it from, from love, but it was actually received differently. So now I actually explained to her, now you know the reason I'm really independent is I want you to rest. Mm. The reason, you know, we're not asking you, you know, um, for anything is that we just don't want any pressure on you. Mm. It's, it, you're, at the end of the day, you're supposed to be enjoying yourself. Yeah. And what that feels like to me, like when she's stroking your hair, it feels like maybe the distance between you isn't so daunting. Yeah. Mm. That's, yeah. that's it. The emotional distance, so long as she's doing something where... She knows she can give her best, and my mum is always really good at like stroking, you know, foreheads and hair, and so it's something really simple. But I find that that's how we connect, mm. because I think really right now for both of us to sit and look at each other in the eye, it's like oh, too uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I've got to move away. Yeah, yeah there's there's still it. too much bridge happening in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think now I can at least look at how we interact with with each other with humour now. Whereas it was just angsty before. It was yeah. just so much angst and 100%. anger and discomfort and a bit of like, you did this, you know. <laughs> Resentment. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, no, just let that go. Life's yeah. too short. That's right. That's mm. right. Yeah. How are we going for time? So. Yeah. Um, mm. Cashew mm. cream's good. I feel like you can't win them all, you know. As long as you're hitting the major ones, that's okay. I think I'm, I've got an addiction to hummus now. Mm. So I do. You will love this hummus. Yeah. Hummus um, with um, smoked paprika mm. and lemon. Oh, my God. This oh, one has so garlic good. in it as well. There's smoked mm. paprika on top as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. May I? Yeah. Go for gold. Or should we complete the interview before I start hoeing no. into this? Oh, no, it's Absolutely so go for it. We um our last episode that we recorded definitely has munching noises in it. It's totally fine. This it's, is so good. It's human, you know. This is soul food. Yeah, and it's all veggie. Yum so yum yum. I think that's what I'm excited about. Oh. So go for it. Oh, whenever you're ready. All good. Hmm? Is it recording? Yeah. Amazing. So. <laughs> what would our world look like if more people practice courageous championship and what do you think the role of mindfulness and spirituality is in that journey back to ourselves and back to each other um i really like this question um the thing is when you're courageous right you can't have courage without that level of vulnerability and you know, I don't know if you follow um, Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Gospel. And it, it's absolutely true. And when you lead with courage and, you know, the, the foundation of that courage is doing the right thing, 
you're going to feel vulnerable, but you're also going to feel that you're doing something bigger than yourself. So it allows you to check your ego because, you know, doing being the hero in the piece, it's going to be driven by ego, but courageous championship is very much around making space for others. Mm. You have a job to do and oftentimes that job will be hard, but if you do it well, and you take others with you and you allow them to blossom and grow into, you know, really their greatness, it's no longer about you anymore. And if that greatness feeds into, you know, how it shapes the world, it really does. Mm. And if everyone operates at that level, everything that you do and every decision that you make, even how you spend money, there's always going to be a filter of, you know, Am I spending this money the right way with businesses that you know are aligned to keeping the world sustainable? Um, the way they do the manufacturing, the way they dispose of their you know their manufacturing process, is it going to allow the world to thrive? Mm. Is it going to make sure that they're not disadvantaging people where they're also um, operating business? You know those little steps start to create a different. A different community. It's mm. a different. It's a different um, vibration. It's a different vibration. It really is. You're vibrating higher. It's not easy to do. Otherwise, it would have really we would have been there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it really lets people. It's. It takes me back to this, and and courageous championship has a mindset that is. I will translate it in English, but it's you know, kuhak gamay, hatag dako. Daghang mabilin satanan, and that what that really means is take less, give more, because by doing that you'll you'll leave plenty for everybody else, mm. which which completely disrupts how we live right now. Yeah, and you know spirituality is definitely embedded in that because what you're saying is I'm not the only and the whole. You know, I'm just part of. And so therefore, if I'm part of, I need to give enough space and resource for the others that are part of, you know, my community, of my network. Mm. So I can't take too much. That's right. And if you think about how, you know, capital raising, how businesses are run, even how we accumulate more, 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 it's making us say, stop. You have more than enough. Mm. Just stop already. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm a cons- you know, I'm a conspicuous con- consumer. Like I love my, my gadget, my everything else. But you know, moving into this mindset, the last, embedded probably the last eighteen months, two years. It's made me had take a hard look at myself and go, you have everything you need. Mm. I haven't bought anything new, for fourteen months now. Hundred percent. Like wow. zero. Mm. And the thing was. I thought it was going to be hard. It hasn't been. Mm. Probably the you know the lockdown for COVID has helped. Yeah. But I haven't missed anything. Mm. Mm. And I've gone back to. I want to read a book. I've gone to you know Stanton Library, North Sydney, my in my local, and picked up a book. From picked the up library. books, DVDs. Mm. It's suddenly it's and you're you're actually finding more because you're actually there. You're like oh, I didn't even realize that movie was made. That looks interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, because you're you're really 
your growth is really just you know um bounded by what you know mm. so the it more you take yourself you. outside yeah. into public spaces then the better yeah. that's what the world's going to look like yeah we have a we have a similar story because we were thinking about moving more recently mm. um and we, we did like six weeks of house hunting to find like the perfect place because i want a backyard we have chickens and they need to run around and that was my main justification yeah. for it. it was like bigger place chickens um and it was almost as if the, the universe was just knocking on the door being like not right now but soon um and so we put everything on hold and we were like it took me a while to realize that we just really have everything we possibly could need in this space for what we're trying to do like with why yeah. empower with yeah. my partner's business for his community studio like we have the space um and we have the resources and i think it's just about being grateful for where we are and what we have and I think it's just hard to come to that place when we're always being told by everything that we see on social media and the media that we want more when yeah. in actual fact, like if we inflect for two seconds, we're like, hey, I'm actually okay. Yeah. Which I, th- which I think, like you say, I think lockdown really helped with that. It put everything on pause and you were forced to not go, go, go. And like you literally just had to like, like look up and look around you and be like, oh my God, okay, I'm going to be stuck here for a long time and it just all you had to do was think <laughs> like you were yeah. only stuck with your thoughts or just be mm. yeah how, no matter how uncomfortable that is you just had to be mm. my dog's loving it though yeah i can imagine <laughs> all that human time <laughs> which just would not know what it is to be alone <laughs> she, just, she has serious separation anxiety like we'll be yeah. out of the house because she's always with us we'll we go for walks she's mm. always with us Vets have actually yeah, mourned yeah. that, like, dogs coming out of lockdown are going to be having, like, a big spike in separation anxieties mm. because they don't know. We have know. one. On yeah. But how funny. Like, a phenomenon now. <laughs> she'll, she'll jump, like, Zoom meeting. She's like, oh, there are people on the on the screen. She'll sit there and just look around at the people. <laughs> See this little head moving around? Because that, that's her. Oh, these are the people. Yeah. What are those other people? She hasn't seen anybody other than... Yeah. Us and even when we go for walks, we go early in the morning or late at night. Mm. So she doesn't really see people. That's right. Yeah. So that's so funny. We have a we have a cat and she just leaves us alone. In most days, she's like, "Ah, oh, do my yeah. own thing, lounging in the sun." And I'm like, "Okay, it's a good. It's also, it's also a cat thing. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> for metaphor. Dogs are like Velcros. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good metaphor for like consent. I suppose it's good to teach kids about consent because it's like if you don't want to touch it, it's not going to yeah. be seen. that's true yeah yeah. dogs don't know consent they even if they don't have consent they'll still velcro themselves to (laughs) yeah stick on that's right yeah i can't wait to get a dog and a a bigger place yes at some point (laughs) when the universe wants us to come up yeah but yeah thank you thank you for coming along oh this is so delightful this seventh episode love it Thank you. We were so vulnerable and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. We love your stories. Please tell more stories. I think you were very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. See, I can do this, but if there was a camera here, not so much. True. I'll get very... Yeah. I was actually going to ask, yeah. um, because we're like I've gone through this period where I'm like, oh, yes, um, we're filming the podcast. I keep saying filming. And I had a meeting with someone who we're interviewing next week, and she was like, maybe it's because you want to film it. 
And so I wasn't going to do it for this one, but I was, <laughs> we're going to do it for the next one, I think, where we might film the podcast and just have like a recording option and also like a visual option as well, just for people to yeah. tune in on both spaces. Right. But I do think that like um, not being seen visually, you are able to be like a bit more, more vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, a bit more honest because like you're not being perceived in that way. Yeah. No one's like judging you visually. And we are <laughs> such visual people, visual animals that we... Yeah. I'm also one of those people that's visually critical. Like, I always just go, oh, God, look at that face. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, for me, like, I'm very self-conscious around the visual part. And that goes back to my mum. Yeah, yeah. I look at that. That's not a good photo. It's always Yeah, I'm doing um, a masterclass with Yemi Penn at the moment, and she says... I know Yemi Penn. Do you? She's beautiful. I was chatting to her on Friday on the way back from Canberra. Actually, she was the guest for our previous episode. Oh! Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. This is crazy. It's like two degrees of separation. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like um, just having oh, you guys fab. both in the room for a conversation would be actually incredible. We should have like, a far side. So, I've been, I've yes. Been a far side. Incredible. Um, but she says that the reason why we're so afraid to speak in public and to make ourselves seen in that way is because of the way that we so judge other people and so harshly judge other people, um, which I, you know, I immediately clued in and I was like, oh, yes, that makes a yeah. lot of sense to me. But yeah. We're going to wrap it up. Yes. Um, so thank you for listening to episode seven of When Strong Women Talk. We had such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for your presence. And oh, this has been fun. It's, it's really been fun. Please come back on sometime I will. soon. Anytime you want me to. And yeah, we have our Why Power community virtual meeting yes, on, on the 9th of June, next Wednesday, and our dinner, our community dinner on the 11th. So um, hit us up on our website or on our Facebook, Instagram um, for more information and details on that. Yes. And you can also send us an email at connectwithusatwhyempower.com.au if you need any more information. And um, if you want to become a Patreon supporter, please follow the link in um, When Strong Women Talk yeah. Instagram as well. We have a Citrine supporter. Thank we you, Sondi. Thank you, Sondi. You'll be getting your thank you note very soon. Yes, and your Citrine. Yes, our um, first ever Patreon. Patreon yeah. supporter. And thank you to Al in the UK, in Wales. Um, for sending us a lovely review of our episodes. I really appreciate it. Keep listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.